I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, former chief of staff under Colin Powell during the George W. Bush presidency, returns the program to offer his thoughts and commentary on the recent Israeli bombing of Gaza in retaliation for the Hamas attack of October 7th, 2023, as well as some discussion of U.S. foreign policy in relation to Israel-Palestine. All that and more in the conversation to follow. We've had Colonel Wilkerson on the show before. He really doesn't need much more of an introduction For those who have listened to the program for some time, so I want to get right into the conversation with that in mind. Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson returns to Parallax Views. Welcome back to Parallax Views. Uh, One of the guests I've had on multiple times now, I really respect his commentary and insights. Uh, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, who served as Chief of Staff under Colin Powell. Uh, How are you doing, and what are your initial thoughts on what has transpired over the last two or so weeks uh, with regards to Israel and Palestine? Well, to your first query, um, for a man approaching 80, I'm doing pretty well. (laughs) For a man... uh, versed as I am in both military operations and diplomacy and national security in general, taught it for 17 years, um, I'm really dismayed. I'm dismayed at the empire. 
America. I'm dismayed at the Israelis, majorly dismayed at the Israelis. Although eight or nine months ago, I would have told you this was coming. I would have said a third intifada because you couldn't look at what Ben Gavir was doing in the occupied territories, East Jerusalem, West Bank, Golan, uh, essentially conducting small pogroms against Palestinians, killing them even, dispossessing them of their land and homes, and say that someone wasn't going to react. As Gidon Levy has said, uh, Haharetz, you can't keep two plus million people in an open air concentration camp and expect no blowback. Um, it's cruel to watch this going on because I also said about two years ago, much to my Republican Party members' chagrin, Democrats too, actually, Israel won't be a state in 20 years because the road they're on is not two states living side by side, not a single state that's democratic. The road they're on is the road they've been on now for uh, some months with Netanyahu's government, and that's the road to apartheid and the road to a non-democratic state. It'll be a Jewish state, but it won't be democratic. So the world will censure them. They'll be a pariah, and I still stick to that. In fact, I might speed up my prediction now. Israel won't be a state even quicker than uh, than I thought. That's sad. It's really sad because uh, they had the opportunity for two states living side by side in reasonable peace. Uh, I'm sorry, if you can't live in peace, we'll put the UN between you, just like we have in Cyprus, on the Korean Peninsula, in Kashmir, and other places. 75 years, I think, we've been in Cyprus, dividing two really hateful hate people that hate each other. Um, so that's a solution, and that's a solution that doesn't kill men, women, and children, and babies, and uh, like we're doing now. This is a war crime, what Israel is perpetrating right now, a war crime. When people ask the question of uh, how should Israel have responded to the October 7th attack. I mean, I, I can understand a, a nation, uh, res they had to respond in some way uh, to the Hamas attack. Was there another path they could have taken, I, I suppose, is what I wanted to ask. That's a good question, and I'll give two answers to it. One that can't be, of course, but it needs to be rehearsed nonetheless. They could have opted for a two-state solution, and they, they could have recognized that supporting Hamas, which is what they were doing, that's what Netanyahu was doing, that's what the emir in Qatar was doing, hundreds of millions of dollars. Netanyahu actually had something to do with the uh, 2006 summer elections that got Hamas in power. Why did he want Hamas in power? Because Hamas has said categorically, no two-state solution. Of course, it wants the Israeli state gone, and Hamas is an ally of Netanyahu, and he realizes it in his perfidious nature. I can use Hamas against the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, corrupt as they are. I can use them because they're for, PA is for a two-state solution. So I'll use Hamas to undermine PA, and I won't get any blowback. Well, hell, of course you're going to get blowback, and he's got that blowback. So that that's the real answer. They could have prevented it by going soundly, reasonably and firmly for a two-state solution. On October the 7th, when they hadn't done that and they got hit, no one should have been surprised, but they were surprised. Mossad, Shin Bet, Netanyahu, all of them apparently, which is just uh, unbelievable, almost as unbelievable as our being surprised by 
or surprised by the fall of the Soviet Union. We aren't doing too well, we Western countries, in terms of intelligence these days. But they could have responded the way a responsible state responds, despite the errors, despite missing the opportunities. They could have gone after Hamas in Gaza methodically, taken lots of casualties, no question about it, but that's what you do when you operate on a humanitarian basis in accordance with the rules of land warfare. You take casualties, but you get to the Hamas people as best you can, and you avoid civilian casualties. You don't put your air force over the entire area and bomb the bejesus out of them. You go after it methodically and carefully, and your tactical plan includes a strategy that says what you're going to do at the end. Who's going to rule Gaza when you're through? Uh, well, not quite the problem it's going to be for them now because you aren't driving everybody out. You aren't killing people indiscriminately. So you've got something to govern in the end. Whether you govern it with a military government or whether you bring in UN forces or whatever to govern it or however solution you come to, they have no solution for this now. Their solution is to get rid of everybody, get rid of everybody in Gaza. I think President Biden has deconvinced them, if you will, of that solution. And now they're having to think about it a little more. Um, and Biden is bringing some more pressure pressure on them now, as well he should. Um, and we've, we've got a state sitting up there that's the anchor of NATO, the southern flank of NATO. It's the second most important state in NATO after Germany, other than us. And it's getting ready to leave. And if they go on with this conflict in a bloody-minded way, like they started it out, Israel, they may have to face the Turks on the battlefield. And if the Turks come in on the battlefield, so will the Saudis, and so will the other Gulf states, and so will the Egyptians, and we will have a real, real war in that case. And Israel will not survive that war unless the United States comes in full bore. Ah, imagine that. You, the U.S., Washington, fighting Ankara, Turkey. <laughs> that's hard to imagine, but it is imaginable. It is conceivable. So that's where we are now. One thing that I was interested in talking with you about is, um, you know, this this figure of um, Benjamin Netanyahu, because I think a lot of people will get into debates about uh, Zionism versus anti-Zionism uh, and, you know, similar topics. But in some ways, I think, the real problem right now is at base Netanyahu and the uh, just regime that he has built up in Israel, because, I mean, it's just one of the most far right regimes I could imagine. It is. It, it's justifiable to call it a Schutzstaffel, an SS, a Nazi regime. I mean, Ben Gavir, head of security, was in the West Bank, in the Golan, in East Jerusalem, killing people dispossessing them of their homes and lands, their olive groves, and, and putting settlers in place. And the settlers, of course, were complicit with him. They were his soldiers. It's not remiss to call them Nazis. Can you speak a little bit to, uh, is there an issue with the U.S.-Israel relationship? Uh, are there ways in which the special relationship between the two countries is actually, I would say, not just uh, necessarily just harming the U.S., but in a way harming Israel as well. I've had guests on like Stephen Walt to talk about this, and I kind of was interested in your 
uh, take on that matter. Yes, I John Mearsheimer, Stephen Walt have talked about this, uh, Mearsheimer in particular of late because of this conflict. Um, and his point on it is, uh, hey, look, uh, Biden, you're in Ukraine, you're in the Middle East, the threats of out in Asia. <laughs> if there's a threat to the United States of America, it's out in Asia. And here you are frittering away your power and your money in these regions that are peripheral to that. But to your specific question, I gave a talk at the National Press Club about five or six years ago. It's still available on YouTube. And I talked about in, in a very methodical, analytical way, as I do in my seminars with my students, how Israel is a strategic liability to the United States, not a strategic asset. And I, I, I went down the reasons for that. Um, there was some pushback and some people had questions and they had good questions and I answered those questions. And I cited the very study done by the Joint Staff commissioned by uh, General Marshall at the 1947, 46-47 point where we were watching what was happening in the Middle East, which was the British were abdicating from their mandate in Palestine. Everybody forgets that that's what it was called, Palestine. <laughs> and the British called it that. Um, and and we were thinking of, about what might materialize in its wake, the British withdrawal. And by the way, the, the, the Jews, to a certain extent, in that period were the worst terrorists in the world. They blew up hotels with British, full of British citizens, um, to hasten their exit from Palestine. Uh, at that time, the Joint Staff said to President Truman, in a, in a full report, which I quoted from, this is not something you want to do. You do not want to recognize the state. And their reasons were pure rationality. They were, there are 400 million Arabs out there in 22 different countries, and they own most of the oil, and there's only a pittance of Jewish citizens and people who are in this region. And they're going to be in trouble. They're going to be in trouble forever versus these Arabs. Um, and oh, by the way, this is not exactly what the United States should be doing in terms of this region of the world and its potential criticality. Didn't make any difference, Truman said. And, and Truman's comment was essentially that I just know that I have more Jewish voters in New York than I have Arabs. And Truman recognized Israel. <laughs> um, that's just a metaphor, though, for what we started when we did that. We started a case where we were the sugar daddy, the big sugar daddy, come thick or thin for that little state. Um, and people forget, too, that that little state originally was composed of a bunch of kibbutzes who were peopled by, or which were peopled by, communists who left Europe after World War II. A lot of them were. And and those kibbutzes over time turned into the richest capital, predatory capitalist country in the world on a per capita basis. On a per capita basis, they have more billionaires than we do. So that's the progression that's taken place. So you could say that not only have all the fears of the joint staff in 1947-48 come true, they've come true in spades because you also have that dichotomy of very successful economy, well-supported to the tune of something like seven or $8,000 per Israeli citizen given to them by the United States in foreign military sales and then just direct aid. Um, 
it's incredible. And that's the contrast with the rest of the region, which isn't quite that well off. Um, Lebanon. Lebanon. Why do the Israelis periodically bomb Lebanon? Because Lebanon has the most potential to be a successful economy and to compete with them. So watch when they attack Lebanon, they go after industrial and 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 trade targets, economic targets, as well as going after Hezbollah or any terrorist targets, because they that, that's what they do. And Israel has become the dominant state in the region in terms of predatory capitalism, and it is predatory. And go back and look at Mark Rich and selling Iraqi oil, oil in the UN for for food, uh, UN for food, oil for food program, the sanctions program. He broke sanctions and sold discounted oil to Israel. Who was the finance minister? Bibi Netanyahu. Ah, go back and examine what Bibi did to get rid of Yitzhak Rabin, the last remaining possible opposition to Bibi and what he wanted to do. He stirred up the crowds. Listen to some of those speeches. Watch that documentary that the Jewish people of Israel did. And you'll see that uh, largely responsible for Yitzhak Rabin's assassination was Bibi Netanyahu. And that started Israel down the road to where I would say it is a complete liability to the United States today. And we're seeing it right now, whether it's Xi Jinping, whether it's Putin, real enemies of the United States, or whether it's uh, uh, Erdogan saying what they're saying. And the Gulf states are going to be saying more and more what everyone is saying as their populations get more and more angry with the slaughter that's going on in Gaza. What's happened in the last 24 hours shows me that Biden realizes some of this, and he's doing his his best, I think, to tamp some of this down. This latest uh, uh, movement into Egypt of some 500 people, that's a pittance, but it's a start. A lot of American citizens in there, a lot of passport, a lot of foreign passport holders. And I understand, uh, I wrote it down somewhere, yeah, uh, 81 wounded Palestinians or badly wounded Palestinians are in that for medical care. So this is the beginning, at least, of, of some, some sort of humanitarian action that might make a difference. If you could, could you elaborate on uh, how you would analyze, I guess, the Biden response in the past two or, or three weeks, because I get the impression that publicly what Biden's doing is what's been called the bear hug strategy, where he publicly says, you know, unconditional support uh, for Israel. But at the same time, it sounds like he's behind the scenes, maybe saying, hey, show some restraint here. Don't do what we did after 9-11. And I feel like there's a maybe a difference in the the way he's publicly addressing it versus how he may be talking on the phone with Netanyahu about it. I think you're absolutely right. In fact, from the inside sources I have, I know you're right. Um, but I would say this. He's fixed on, if he's fixed on anything, it isn't Ukraine, it isn't Israel, it's the 2024 elections. That's just the nature of the beast in our country. Um, I taught this too, the influence of domestic politics on national security. It's enormous. It sometimes is the most potent influence. So as long as he's that, he's watching the polls closely. Well, the polls are shifting. Incrementally, they're shifting. Even Jewish Americans are opposed to what Netanyahu is doing. And 51 to 52 percent of Americans at large, independents, Republicans, Democrats, are opposed to what he's doing, too bitterly opposed to what he's doing. As those polls shift, Biden's push, as you intimated, is going to become more public. 
you know, he's going to want people to see that he's not tolerating this bloodbath, that he's not tolerating these war crimes. And so it's going to become more public. I think those two things are going to meet. The private advice is going to have some impact. The public little bit that he has to expose will have some impact. And then things will better themselves and he won't have to be so public about it. Um, but I don't know that. I don't know that. And that would be a, a, a an interesting dynamic to monitor if you were a pollster uh, to see just how the polls in America make Biden more public in his censure of Netanyahu. How much of a concern do you think it is uh, the possibility of this rolling out of control? What I mean by that is I know a lot of people that are concerned about the possibility of a uh, a broader regional war coming out of this. Absolutely. Erdogan has made statements that would make me think that the most powerful land army in NATO, um, and that includes the United States, the most powerful land army in NATO is not Germany or the United States or France, it's Turkey. And that army might turn itself on Israel. I mean, he's made statements that insinuate that, uh, and I know for a fact, having been at the State Department during some of the early days of this, Erdogan is intent on being not Tehran, not Riyadh. He's intent on Turkey being and him personally being the leader of the Muslim world. And if he's going to gain and keep and sustain that crown, as it were, this would be a real way to reinforce it with a lot of the Arab world. Uh, and you know, and if Turkey entered this fray, what would the United States do? I mean, what would we do if a NATO ally crossed the Hellespont, as it were, <laughs> and and decided to put its armies into the fray? Uh, Israel's never fought anyone like this. They'd lose. They would lose. Flat out, they would lose. So what would we do? What would we do? And then there are other parties out there watching, too. The Houthis down in Yemen, I, I discount them as having any real capability to influence Israel, but I don't discount Hezbollah, even though their political situation in Lebanon right now is bad, really bad. The Lebanese don't want anything to do with them anymore. Uh, and so Nasrallah would not be resurrecting himself by having Hezbollah attack from the north. But it's not inconceivable. And then you've got Quds Force-sponsored groups in Syria that might attack through the Golan. So you could have a three-front war. And what would the United States do then? Because I'm not sure Israel could handle a three-foot war, a three-front war. So you're right. There is a potential. I don't see it happening right this moment, especially if Israel continues to tamp down a little bit on what it's doing and Biden continues to bring his influence to bear. But it is a potential, and it's a dangerous potential. And I haven't even talked about Russia and China. I mean, do you want to speak to that a little bit, uh, Russia and China, and how uh, they could end up figuring into all of this. Well, Mearsheimer's right. He was just in Australia, and I watched one of his presentations there. He's right. Here we are focused on money going to Ukraine, billions going to Ukraine, billions going to Israel, and our support going to Israel, our aircraft carriers moving on behalf of Israel, and the real threats out in China. Um, Mearsheimer thinks, John thinks, we're going to have a war. It's inevitable. Rising power, status quo power, power sinking we're going to have a war. That, that's just John's realist interpretation of geopolitical uh, power. We're I was going to say, I think you have a little bit of a different view on that in that you don't think yeah. it's inevitable, but. 
I don't think, yeah, I don't. I think good diplomacy and keeping our powder dry, that is not being in Ukraine and not being supportive of Ukraine, getting the thing over and done and ceasefired and a peaceful solution and not being in Israel or potentially in Israel and not focused on the Middle East is key to keeping China uh, uh, reluctant to do anything, okay? If they see us totally preoccupied, uh, you know, I, I would salivate if I were a Chinese strategist right now. I would be telling Xi Jinping if I were the key strategist in the Central Party School or for the military, Politburo, I'd be saying, we'll, we can do Taiwan. Don't even sweat it. Just let the United States do a little bit more. Let them get so broke that we're taking the interest payments on their debt and bribing Sri Lanka, for example. They just spent $200 million for a lease in Sri Lanka. That $200 million was the payment of us to them on their treasury bonds. <laughs> so they got it the best of all possible worlds. But I would be saying, if you want Taiwan back and it's something you can't leave the leadership of China going to your grave without it happening... Just wait a few minutes and we'll do it. And they'll be so preoccupied, they won't be able to do anything except protest. That's where we are to a certain extent. And when you entice your principal enemy, potential enemy, to do things like that, um, you're not doing well strategically. If you could, uh, since you, you've worked in the State Department and you were around for the Bush years, and that was the era of, of the neoconservatives can you talk a little bit about, is there anything that happened during that time period, uh, maybe the philosophy of the neoconservatives that helped push things over the years to the point we're at now? Uh, do, do you see a connection between uh, those early war on terror years and where we're at right now with regards to Israel and the Middle East? I certainly do. You've struck on another theme of my seminars at William & Mary and the George Washington University. Um, the neoconservatives have always been with us. They, they weren't always called neoconservatives, but they've been in both political parties. And I would call them people who believe, as Dick Cheney said, he believed America first, second and third and hell with the rest of the world unless we need it. Um, that That's sort of their philosophy. Now, there are variations on a theme here. For example, Douglas Fye, a card carrying member of the Likud party, Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, number three in the Defense Department during George W. Bush's first term. And that's what Colin Powell told President Bush. And, and President Bush said back to Colin, uh, you don't mean if I looked in his wallet, I'd find a Likud membership card, do you? And Powell said, it's a metaphor for he's in Israel's back pocket. And there's a book coming out called Deadly Betrayal by uh, a former Air Force Master uh, Chief Master Sergeant Dennis Fritz, and it's all about how Mossad invested Douglas Fife's office. The Mossad was there 24-7. So uh, people forget Fife was kicked out of Reagan's administration because he was leaking secrets to Israel. Well, he didn't just leak secrets to Israel for George W. Bush. He let Israel in the Pentagon and occupy his office. Um, so... That's a connection with the neoconservatives, certain neoconservatives we didn't have before that we have now. It's still there. Victoria Newland, for example, who has the potential to be Secretary of State. They have been throughout our history a Barry Goldwater-like, although that's an insult to Barry with the present crop of neoconservatives, 
um, right wing, everything is okay in defense of the empire to include war crimes and everything else, torture, state-sponsored torture, because we said so. That group's been with us a long time. I doubt we'll ever cast them off completely. Um, but there have always been others to attenuate their effects or to say, as George H.W. Bush said about Paul Wolfowitz's plan to rule the world in 1992, as I recall, handing it to the then chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, give this back to the crazies in the basement of the Pentagon. So you had competent and experienced leadership in the White House to tell these people to go to hell when they needed to do that. And H.W. Bush was the last president willing to do that. Bill Clinton tolerated them. He not only tolerated them, he gave them their head. Obama tolerated them until the very last. I met with President Obama in the Roosevelt Room in his last year of his second term. And he was supposed to meet with us for about me and General Eaton, Paul Eaton, for about 15 minutes to thank us for our work on the nuclear agreement with Iran. He talked to us for 45 minutes. And the reason he talked to us was because he was so sick of what he'd done in Libya. Well, chalk that one up to them, too, and chalk it up to Hillary Clinton, who made the most impolitic remark probably in diplomatic history. We came, we saw, and he died, referring to Gaddafi. Well, look at Libya now. Look at what we made Libya, Libya into, neoconservatives. And I don't take Hillary out of that gang, though she disguised it well within the D Democratic Party. Madeleine Albright, who never met a dictator, she didn't want to bomb with somebody else's bombs. Um, these people have always been with us, but we've had experienced presidents who were able to attenuate their effect. It's not been the case for the last three or four. You know, in regards to that, since you mentioned Douglas Fife, I know that there's going to be people that will say, oh, he's saying that a, a figure like Fife was in the pocket of Likud. And there will be someone that tries to push back by saying, oh, isn't this promoting uh, a dual loyalties trope, a sort of anti-Semitic trope about dual loyalties? I was wondering, how would you respond to people that try to uh, say, oh, any of this talk about neoconservatives like Fife is just playing the dual loyalties trope? You know, the first reaction I would have to that is, uh, no, no, no. Douglas Fife was not in Jerusalem or at that time Tel Aviv's back pocket. Tel Aviv was in Douglas Fife's back pocket because these people, these people have their own agenda. And Israel is sometimes in that agenda because they're interested in her security for various reasons. Some of them are interested in it because, like John Hagee, they want the end times to come. And Israel is essential for the end times. So he heads up Christians United for Israel because he wants the end times to come. So there are different reasons for him doing it. And the anti-Semitic trope, as Jonathan Shanker himself said a few years ago, we got to stop doing this anti-Semite thing. It's losing its relevance. Well, it's back now with this war because a lot of people are throwing it around. It's the only weapon they have. Um, once upon a time on a student's provocation, we took my Oxford English Dictionary, ponderous thing, and opened it up, and we looked up the definition of Semite and Semitic. Here it is, quote, a person belonging to the race of mankind, which includes most of the peoples mentioned in Genesis as descended from Shin, son of Noah, as the Hebrews, Arabs, Assyrian, and Armenians. Also, a person speaking a Semitic language as his native tongue. What does Semitic mean in the Oxford English di uh, Dictionary? 
of or pertaining to the Semites. The Arabs are Semitic too. <laughs> so this trope about anti-Semite, it, it's just something people haul out when they don't have any other argument. And basically, you can look at them and say, you're empty. Your quiver is shot out. You have no weapons. If you have to say, I'm an anti-Semite because I say Bibi Netanyahu is a Nazi, that's ridiculous. And yet it still comes out. And we have law enforcement all across the country now gathering around synagogues and around Muslim institutions, both Semites, incidentally. We don't pay any attention to the English language anymore, um, let alone the QED or the OED. Um, and they're doing it because of the quote unquote anti-Semitic threat. It's just people hating people. You don't have to use improper phrases to describe it. It's people hating people and they hate people for various and sundry reasons. And in this case, the Arabs hate the Semitic Arabs hate the Semitic Jews because of the land grabs and the brutality of their military forces and their leadership. It's that simple, but we don't want to do that because that explains who we are. What was it Hobbes said, taking from the Greeks, homo homini lupus est. That's Latin for man is the wolf of mankind. No joke. So one thing I was interested in speaking with you about was um, in terms of where things are headed right now, under Netanyahu or a successor to Netanyahu that has a similar sort of ideological bent, where is this all headed? Because I feel like with this war in Gaza, uh, just this bombardment, I should say, of Gaza, you know, ultimately there needs to be a political solution uh, to the Israel-Palestine issue. Uh, whether that's a one state uh, or a two state solution. But I feel like if we continue down this path that Netanyahu's regime has been on, that's not going to be the solution. It's just going to be, well, we're going to annex the West Bank next. We're going to keep grabbing more land. Is that the collision course that Israel is on right now? It is. And therefore, Israel will not be a state within 20 years because the world ultimately will not permit that. I feel like once they throw Netanyahu out, and I would have done that immediately. I would have got rid of him immediately. The unity government would have been a government led in a, on an interim basis by Benny Gantz, and Netanyahu would be gone. Him and his wife would be gone to the court and in jail six months later. Um, that would cleanse the air, cleanse the air, and then make things a little bit easier for the leadership in Jerusalem. As long as he's around, the air is dirty, it's poisoned, it's filthy. Uh, so get rid of him. That's the first thing you should do. Then they've got to go for, as you said, a single state. And in that case, it must be a democratic state and therefore not a Jewish state. I was getting ready to go to Jerusalem along with a couple of other people. And we, we, we spent $30,000 to put up a sign, a billboard. It said a Jewish state is not good for Jews. Oh, is and that gonna, uh, that's the Israeli-Palestinian Confederation, yeah, Joseph Avazar? Yeah, yeah, yeah Joseph, Joseph Avazar. Yeah, we were we were going to do that. We we're going to put that sign up. Of course, we postponed it now, but it can't be if if that's the solution. It can't be a Jewish state because that's not a democracy, uh, and you would have a, 
you would have uh, plebes, helots, slaves in that state, as long as you had a Jewish state and Palestinian citizens. Or, and a better solution is two states. Two states, and if you have to, you put a UN force between them, as in Cyprus, as I said before, and uh, you keep it there for 100 years if necessary, and you keep them apart until they learn to live with one another, if ever that's possible. That those are the only two solutions for peace. You never have peace if you just keep one state there that's armed to the teeth, backed by a state that's armed to the teeth, and spending more money on its defense establishment than ever in its history, um, and going broke, incidentally. The, the interest payments on the debt that the United States has right now, plus the defense budget, will leave no discretionary federal spending within a couple of years. That's how bad we are in debt, and that's how much money we're spending on the military. Um, so the only way you, you, you're right, the only way you do it is one state democratic for all, or two states guarded in the division point. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I mean, I guess the other solution is you just keep going down this path that Netanyahu is going down, and eventually that'll just. It's weird because I actually think the biggest threat to Israel in some ways is a figure like Netanyahu. I mean, he's sort of a criminal thug and he's turning Israel into a pariah state. But he's got a lot of the people arrayed around him who are the same as the mullahs in Tehran. In fact, if we were truthful, we would admit to two theocracies in the Middle East, powerful theocracies. One in Tehran, which has now been delegitimized, I think, by the women and, and the people who joined them in the latest revolt. They are no longer the legitimate government in Iran, of Iran in 60 to 70 percent of the Iranian people's eyes. So it's just a matter of time till that government goes. What replaces it is another matter. I fear it's going to be the IRGC in a military dictatorship. But it's a theocracy. Jerusalem's a theocracy. So you got us backing one theocracy and railing like hell at the other theocracy. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Before we close out, because I know we only have a few more minutes and I don't want to monopolize your time, but in terms of uh, flashpoints that you want people to understand right now, what do you think the main issues that maybe uh, mainstream media or just other analysts are missing when it comes to uh, the events we currently see unfolding this turmoil in the Middle East. What do you think the most important points people have to really take in are? I think it's this, and I think it's mostly, if not almost completely unknown by most Americans. We have stripped the world, we principally, of nuclear weapons, arms control treaties. The Moved by Putin now to abandon the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, CTBT, means that I think he has agreed with Xi to give Xi plutonium. Xi wants to build out China's nuclear weapons weaponry, the war, total warheads, delivery vehicles, and so forth, so he can ride out a first strike and have a panoply of weapons, much like Russia and us. That's four to 5,000 weapons. In order to do that, he's going to need Putin's plutonium, and he's going to need to test, probably. So that's a foreshadowing of the need to test. If they do, I hope they don't, but if they do, I hope it's underground in China or underground in Russia. But that's 
that's a dangerous development because we have no treaties and yet we have the weaponry bit multiplying in the world and the number of nuclear weapon states multiplying. We now have North Korea. We've always had Israel, but you know everybody knows it now. So we have nine nuclear weapon states and potential for more, Saudi Arabia probably, Iran probably. Um, that's the most dangerous thing in the world next to climate change because the more of these weapons you have without any treaties or any talking whatsoever, the more apt we are to use them. That's colossally dangerous. And all these wars we're contemplating, even one between the U.S. and China or between the U.S., China, and Russia, they pale, except for the nuclear componentry, they pale beside these other things. And every war game I ever played as director of the Marine Corps War College or as an Army professional at the Navy War College and elsewhere, we always wound up in any scenario featuring Taiwan, the South China Sea, or whatever, in war with China going nuclear. Because we can't get at one another. They're not about to invade us, and we're not about to invade them. Our army's smaller than Bangladesh's right now. It'd be swallowed up in Fujian province alone. So we would go nuclear at the end of the war game. Once we had treated each other's Air Force and Navy, we'd look at each other, and the leaders would start saying, oh, let's bomb Shanghai with a couple of nuclear weapons and they'll quit. And then the red team, very, very versed in Chinese strategy, the red team would say, okay, you nuke us, we'll nuke you back. We'll hit Los Angeles, New York, and Houston. That's not where you want to be. I just had two more questions really briefly. Uh, since we mentioned uh, this issue of the possibility of a two-state or a one-state solution, one thing I will always hear is people will try to push back and say, well, you know, it's the the Palestinians, the Arabs uh, have never wanted to do a deal. They've been offered it multiple times. Um, what do you say to those people? Because I feel like that completely ignores the times Israel has been given a deal and, you know, they're like, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, the position of Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority is two states, but they want to refer back more often than not, through UN Security Council Resolution 242. And the right of return, <laughs> borders at that time, all these things that Israel doesn't want to do. They don't want to come back from the borders that they won, and they don't want to come back. They don't even want to call it occupied territories anymore, but they certainly are occupied territories. Um, so you know, saying PA is, is a willing partner for two-state solution for Israel is a non-starter because they want UN Security Resolution 242 implemented. And Israel doesn't want that. Israel thinks that's an untenable situation. So um, you have a Palestinian group out there ready to go, but with demands that are plausible, plausible after all the UN passed the resolution uh, and the United States was voting <laughs> at that time. <laughs> Very last thing I'll ask you, uh, you know, when it comes to Donald Trump, um, did the Trump presidency and the Abraham Accords and some of the decisions made with regards to U.S. foreign policy in Israel uh, under Trump, I know there was the changing of the embassy and whatnot, has that played a role in where we're at right now? Certainly the changing of the embassy did because it gave Netanyahu a green light that he didn't have before. I mean, 
just a big, huge orb of a green light. And it said, you can do anything you want to do. My president, the one I served, George W. Bush, in the first term, had already given that green light flickeringly. He told Ariel Sharon in the Oval Office, afterwards calling him a man of peace, which really turned on the Arab world. This is the guy responsible for the Shatila, you know, the, the refugee camps in Lebanon in 1982. Yeah, Sabra and Shatila, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, he told him... 40 years of policy has failed. The two-state solution is dead. The roadmap is dead. Uh, go do what you need to do. We'll back you. That's what started all this in, in terms of a new Israel, if you will. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's easy to trace where the bad stuff started. It's easy to trace who did the bad stuff on both sides, Israel and the United States, and the Palestinians, too. But I keep coming back to uh, yeah, Gidon's, uh, who works for Haaretz and is one of the bravest journalists I've probably ever heard about. Gideon Levy, yeah. Yeah, I don't know how he stays alive. Um, as he said, uh, intimated at least, if not said, uh, who didn't expect this? <laughs> if you keep two million plus people in jail with very little to hope for, who didn't expect this? And I, I was going to say on that note, too, um, you know, I know people will say that Gaza isn't officially occupied, but I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's a siege. Uh, yep. It's been like that for years. And I think regardless of how people want to frame it, when you have military checkpoints all around Gaza and it's hard for Gazans to even get into Israel, I think, you know, whether or not you want to argue that it's a, an official or unofficial occupation, I mean, there this is a bad situation for Gazans. And part of it is it's in huge part. It is uh, at Israel's doing that it's become this way. You're absolutely right. And some of the comments by IDF generals, one I particularly remember where they referred to their enemy as subhuman or animals. Uh, they let it slip. That's how they really look at the Gazans, subhuman animals. Well, hey, Colonel Wilkerson, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax View. As I always, uh, it's a pleasure to speak with you, as always. Uh, is there anything you want to plug or uh, that you think is um, worthy of my listeners' time right now? Anything else in closing? Yeah, one thing in particular, which I'm heavily involved in now, is meeting the climate change crisis. Uh, the, all this stuff is distracting us from something that is going to, not in my lifetime, but certainly probably in yours, maybe eliminate us from the planet <laughs> and we need to be doing more, far more. Thank you again, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. Thank you for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you found informative or educational my conversation with Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, 
You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.